All right, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are currently on the chapter before last, and this chapter is entitled Of the Coming of John. We finished the last episode in the, the middle of this chapter, so this episode will be dedicated to completing this chapter. Quote, perhaps, end quote, said John, as he settled himself on the train, quote, Perhaps I am to blame myself in struggling against my manifest destiny simply because it looks hard and unpleasant. Here is my duty to Altamaha, plain before me. Perhaps they'll let me help settle the Negro problems there. Perhaps they won't. I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. End quote. And then he mused and dreamed and planned a life work, and the train flew south. Down in Altamaha, after seven long years, all the world knew John was coming. The homes were scrubbed and scoured, above all, one. The gardens and yards had an unwanted trimness, and Jenny brought a new gingham. With some finesse and negotiation, all the dark Methodists and Presbyterians were induced to join in a monster welcome at the Baptist church. And as the day drew near, Warm discussions arose on every corner as to the exact extent and nature of John's accomplishments. It was noontide on a gray and cloudy day when he came. The black town flocked to the depot with the little of the white at the edges, a happy throng with, quote, good mornings, end quote, and, quote, howdies, end quote, and laughing and joking and jostling. Mother sat yonder in the window watching, but Sister Jenny stood on the platform nervously fingering her dress. Tall and lithe, with soft brown skin and loving eyes peering from out a tangled wilderness of hair, John rose gloomily as the train stopped, for he was thinking of the, quote, Jim Crow, end quote, car. He stepped to the platform and paused. A little dingy station, a black crowd gaudy and dirty, a half-mile of dilapidated shanties along a staggling ditch of mud. An overwhelming sense of the sordidness and narrowness of it all seized him. He looked in vain for his mother, kissed coldly, oh, excuse me. He looked in vain for his mother, kissed coldly the tall, strange girl who called him brother, spoke a short, dry word here and there, then, lingering neither for handshaking nor gossip, started silently up the street, raising his hat merely to the last eager old auntie, to her open-mouthed astonishment. The people were distinctly bewildered. This silent, cold man, was this John? Where was his smile and hearty hand grasp? Quote, Pierre kind of down in the mouth, end quote, said the Methodist preacher thoughtfully. Quote, seemed monsters stuck up. Monsters? Monsters stuck up? Seemed monsters stuck up, end quote, complained the Baptist sister. But the white postmaster from the edge of the crowd expressed the opinion of his folks plainly. Quote, that damn nigger, end quote, said he, as he shouldered the mail and arranged his tobacco, quote, has gone north and got plump full of notions, full notions, but they won't work in Altamaha, end quote. And the crowd melted away. The meeting of welcome at the Baptist church was a failure. Rain spoiled the barbecue and Thunder turned the milk into ice cream. Um, and Thunder turned the milk into ice cream, sorry. 
<clears throat> Rain spoiled the barbecue and Thunder turned the milk into ice cream. When the speaking came at night, the house was crowded to overflowing. The three preachers had especially prepared themselves, but somehow John's manner seemed to throw a blanket over everything. He seemed so cold and preoccupied and had so strange an air of restraint that the Methodist brother could not warm up to his theme and elicited not a single, quote, amen, end quote. The Presbyterian prayer was but feebly responded to, and even the Baptist preacher, though he waked, faint, enthusiast him, got so mixed up in his favorite sentence that he had to close it by stopping fully 15 minutes sooner than he meant. The people moved uneasily in their seats as John rose to reply. He spoke slowly and methodically. The age, he said, demanded new ideas. We were far different from those men of the 17th and 18th centuries with broader ideas of human brotherhood and destiny. Then he spoke of the rise of charity and popular education, and particularly of the spread of wealth and work. The question was, then, he added reflectively, looking at the low, discolored ceiling, what part the Negroes of this land would take in the striving of the new century. He sketched in vague outline the new industrial school that might rise among these pines. He spoke in detail of the charitable and philanthropic work that might be organized, of money that might be saved for banks and businesses. Finally, he urged unity and deprecated especially religious and denominational bickering. Quote, today, end quote, he said with a smile, quote, the world cares little whether a man be Baptist or Methodist, or indeed a churchman at all, so long as he is good and true. What difference does it make whether a man be baptized in river or washbow, or not at all? Let's leave all that littleness and look higher, end quote. Then, thinking of nothing else, he slowly sat down. A painful hush seized the crowd at mass. Little had they understood of what he said, for he spoke an unknown tongue, save the last word about baptism. That they knew, and they sat very still while the clock ticked. Then at last, a low suppressed snarl came from the amen corner, and an old bent man arose, walked over the seats, and climbed straight up into the pulpit. He was wrinkled in black, with scant gray and tufted hair, his voice and hands shook as with palsy, but on his face lay the intense, rapt look of the religious fanatic. He seized the Bible with his rough, huge hands. Twice he raised it inarticulate and then fairly burst into words with rude and awful eloquence. He quivered, swayed, and bent, then rose aloft in perfect majesty till the people moaned and wept, wailed and shouted, and a wild shrieking arose from the corners where all the pent-up feeling of the hour gathered itself and rushed into the air. John never knew clearly what the old man said. He only felt himself held up to scorn and scathing denunciation for trampling on the true religion, and he realized with amazement that all unknowingly he had put rough, rude hands on something this little world held sacred. He arose silently and passed out into the night. Down toward the sea he went, in the fitful starlight, half conscious of the girl who followed timidly after him. When at last he stood upon the bluff, he turned to his little sister and looked upon her sorrowfully, remembering with sudden pain how little thought he had given her. He put his arm about her and let her passion of tears spend itself on his shoulder. 
Okay. Let's have a reflection. <clears throat> so for me, the first thing that stands out is the reception that the postman gave John. I think that the reception that the black people of the community gave John, we can understand through the the lens of who John was and who John became when he was away. And so these black people in this excuse me, this black these black people in this community in this city were expecting the same sort of jovial, uh eyes wide, full young man to come back here and just to be a little bit more educated, to be a little bit more learned. And I think that that is one of the misconceptions of how knowledge works. Uh, knowledge can be a burden, especially if you are marginalized, subjugated, oppressed, exploited people. When you don't have knowledge and you're not conscious and you don't understand the fact you're being oppressed and exploited and marginalized and subjugated at the extent to which it is happening, it's a lot easier to be ignorantly, uh, blissfully ignorant. But John had left and he had seen what could be. He had learned what truly was. And so when he returned back, he he was not the same young black man that couldn't read and the young same black man who was uneducated and un, unlearned and uncultured. He had he had the world had been opened up to him to to just enough not to a full extent because he's still a black man in America in the times in which he was in, but it had been opened up just enough for him to see the possibilities and being denied those possibilities will manifest itself in making a man more serious, making a man more stern, making a man uh, more determined to focus on the, to prioritize things like freedom and justice and liberty and education and knowledge and and as opposed to what as opposed to some of the things that may have been priorities before you had that type of knowledge before you were conscious and i find it interesting throughout this throughout this reading we kept hearing about these white people saying that him going to the North was going to spoil him or not going to the North, him going away to school was going to spoil him and uh, he's going to get spoiled, spoiled. And th that term spoiled can be used in so many different contexts. You know, sometimes they talk about kids being spoiled because they have too many toys or a person being spoiled because somebody does so much for them. They don't have to do for themselves. But the way these white people were talking about him being spoiled, they meant that he was going to, he was going to uh, not be the kind of black person that they like. He was going to be a black person who wasn't, who no longer wanted to be in his place or stay in his place anymore. And they knew that wouldn't happen because they understood the, the, the power that laid within knowledge, the power that laid within education, the power that laid within information. And so they knew what would happen. These white people and he, uh, knew what happened once black people be, began to have access to that knowledge and information. And that's not what they wanted. They wanted black people to stay in their place. They didn't think it was black people's place to learn and to go to school and to be involved in politics and to be involved with government and to be involved with uh, uh, things that they deemed to be above the black people of the time. And so those are all the things that sort of stand out to me in that, in the, in that passage on my first read. Okay. 
Long they stood together, peering over the gray, unresting water. Quote, John, end quote, she said, quote, does it make everyone unhappy when they study and learn lots of things? End quote. He paused and smiled. Quote, I am afraid it does. End quote. He said, quote, and John, are you glad you studied? End quote. Quote, yes. End quote. Came the answer, slowly but positively. She watched the flickering lights upon the sea and said thoughtfully, quote, I wish I was unhappy. And, and, end quote, putting both arms about his neck, quote, I think I am a little, John, end quote. It was several days later that John walked up to the judge's house to ask for the privilege of teaching the Negro school. The judge himself met him at the front door, stared a little hard at him and said brusquely, quote, Go round to the kitchen door, John, and wait, end quote. Sitting on the kitchen steps, John stared at the corn, thoroughly perplexed. What on earth had came over him? Every step he made offended someone. He had come to save his people, and before he left the depot, he had hurt them. He sought to teach them at church and how to outrage their deepest feelings. He had schooled himself to be respectful to the judge and then blundered into his front door. And all the time he had meant right. And yet, and yet, somehow he found it so hard and strange to fit his old surroundings again, to find his place in the world about him. He cannot remember what he used to have any, di excuse me, he cannot remember that he used to have any difficulty in the past when life was glad and gay. The world seemed smooth and easy then. Perhaps, but his sister came to the kitchen door just then and said the judge awaited him. The judge sat in the dining room amid his morning's mail, and he did not ask John to sit down. He plunged squarely into the business. Quote, you've come for the school, I suppose. Well, John, I want to speak to you plainly. You know I'm a friend to your people. I've helped you and your family and would have done more if you hadn't got the notion of going off. Now, I like the colored people and sympathize with all their reasonable aspirations. But you and I both know, John that in this country, the Negro must remain subordinate and can never expect to be the equal of white men. In their place, your people can be honest and respectful. And God knows, I'll do what I can to help them. But when they want to reverse nature and rule white men and marry white women and sit in my parlor, then, by God, we'll hold them under if we have to lynch every nigger in the land. Now, John, the question is, are you with your education and northern notions, going to accept the situation and teach the darkies to be faithful servants and laborers as your fathers were? I knew your father, John. He belonged to my brother, and he was a good nigger. Well, well, are you going to be like him, or are you going to try to put full ideas of rising inequality into these folks' heads and make them discontented and unhappy? End quote. Quote, I'm going to accept the situation, Judge Henderson, end quote, answered John, with a brevity that did not escape the keen old man. He hesitated a moment and then said shortly, quote, very well, we'll try you a while. Good morning, end quote. 
It was a full month after the opening of the Negro school that the other John came home, tall, gay, and headstrong. The mother wept, the sister sang, the whole white town was glad. A proud man was the judge, and it was a goodly sight to see the two swinging down Main Street together. And yet all did, and yet all did not go smoothly between them, for the younger man could not and did not veil his contempt for the little town and plainly had his heart set on New York. Now the one cherished ambition of the judge was to see his son mayor of Altamaha, representative to the legislature, and who could say, excuse me, and who could say, governor of Georgia. So the argument often waxed hot between them. Quote, good heavens, father, end quote, the younger man would say after dinner as he lighted a cigar and stood by the fireplace. Quote, you surely don't expect a young fellow like me to settle down permanently in this, this guy forgot in town with nothing but mud and Negroes, end quote. Quote, I did, end quote, the judge would answer laconically. And on this particular day, it seemed from the gathering scowl that he was about to add something more emphatic. But neighbors had already begun to drop in to admire his son, and the conversation drifted. Quote, hear that John is livening things up at the darky school, end quote, volunteered the postmaster after a pause. Quote, what now, end quote, asked the judge sharply. Quote, oh, nothing in particular, just his almighty air and uppish ways. Believe I did hear something about his giving talks on the French Revolution, equality, and such like. He's what I call a dangerous nigger, end quote. Quote, have you heard him say anything out of the way? End quote. Quote, why, no, but Sally, our girl, told my wife a lot of rot. Then, too, I don't need to hear. A nigger won't, a nigger what won't say sir to a white man or, quote, end quote. Sorry, these, the quotations be throwing it off. I be wanting to use the quotation so that way it don't seem like I'm just... See, I want to make sure people know that these are things being said in the conversation. So my fault with some of these quotes. Quote, who is this John? End quote, interrupted the son. Quote, why it's little black John, Peggy's son, your old playfellow. End quote. The young man's face flushed angrily, and then he laughed. Quote, oh, end quote, said he. Quote, it's the darkie that tried to force himself into a seat beside the lady I was escorting. End quote. But Judge Henderson waited to hear no more. He had been nettled all day. And now with this, he rose with a half-smothered oath, took his hat and cane, and walked straight to the schoolhouse. For John, it had been a long, hard pull to get things started in the rickety old shanty that sheltered the school. The Negroes were rent into factions for and against him. The parents were careless, the children irregular and dirty, and books, pencils, and slates largely missing. Nevertheless, he struggled hopefully on and seemed to see at last some glimmering of dawn. The attendance was larger, and the children were a shade cleaner this week. Even the booby class and reading showed a little comforting progress. So John settled himself with renewed patience this afternoon. Quote, now, Mandy, end quote, he said cheerfully, quote, that's better, but you must not chop your words up so. If the man goes, why, your little brother even would, 
wouldn't tell a story that way, now would he? End quote. Quote, nah, sir, he can't talk. End quote. Quote, all right, now let's try again. If the man, end quote, quote, John, end quote, the whole school startled and surprised, and the teacher half arose as the red, angry face of the judge appeared in the open doorway. Quote, John, this school is closed. You children can go home and get to work. The white people of Altima High are not spending their money on black folks to have their heads crammed with impudence and lies. Clear out. I locked the door myself. End quote. Up at the great pillared house, the tall young son wandered aimlessly about after his father's abrupt departure. In the house, there was little to interest him. The books were old and stale, the local newspaper flat, and the women had retired with headaches and sewing. He tried a nap, but it was too warm. So he sauntered out into the fields, complaining disconsolingly, quote, Good Lord, how long will this imprisonment last? End quote. End quote. He was not a bad fellow, just a little spoiled and self-indulgent, and as headstrong as his proud father. He seemed a young man pleasant to look upon as he sat on the great black stump at the edge of the pines, idly swinging his legs and smoking. Quote, while there is not even a girl worth getting up a respectable flirtation with, end quote, he growled. Just then, his eyes caught a tall, willowy figure hurrying toward him on the narrow path. He looked with interest at first and then burst into a laugh as he said, quote, Well, I declare, if it isn't Jenny, the little brown kitchen maid, why I never noticed before what a trim little body she is. Hello, Jenny. Why haven't you kissed me since I came home? End quote, he said gaily. The young girl stared at him in surprise and confusion, faltered something inarticulate, and attempted to pass. But a willful mood had seized the young idler, and he caught at her arm. Frightened, she slipped by, and half mischievously, he turned and ran after her through the tall pines. Yonder, toward the sea, at the end of the path, came John slowly with his head down. He had turned wearily homeward from the schoolhouse. Then, thinking to shield his mother from the blow, started to meet his sister as she came from work and break the news of his dismissal to her. Quote, I'll go away, end quote, he said slowly. Quote, I'll go away and find work and send for them. I cannot live here any longer, end quote. And then the fierce, buried anger surged up into his throat. He waved his arms and hurriedly wild, and hurried wildly up the path. The great brown sea lay silent. The air scarce breathed. The dying day bathed the twisted oaks and mighty pines in black and gold. There came from the wind no warning, not a whisper from the cloudless sky. There was only a black man hurrying on with an ache in his heart, seeing neither sun nor sea, but starting as from a dream at the frightened cry that woke the pines, to see his dark sister struggling in the arms of a tall and fair-haired man. He said not a word, but... Seizing a fallen limb, struck him with all the pent-up hatred of his great black arm, and the body lay white and still beneath the pines, all bathed in sunshine and in blood. John looked at it dreamily, then walked back to the house briskly, and said in a soft voice, quote, Mammy, I'm going away. I'm going to be free, end quote. She gazed at him dimly and faltered, quote, North, honey, is you going north again? End quote. 
He looked out where the North Star glistened, pale above the waters, and said, quote, Yes, Mammy, I'm going north, end quote. Then, without another word, he went out into the narrow lane up by the straight pines to the same winding path and seated himself on the great black stump, looking at the blood where the body had lain. Yonder in the great past, he had played with that dead boy, romping together under the solemn trees. The night deepened. He thought of the boys at Johnstown. He wondered how Brown had turned out, and Carrie, and Jones. Jones. Why he was Jones. And he wondered what they would all say when they knew, when they knew, in that great lawn dining room with his hundreds of merry eyes. Then as the sheen of the starlight stole over him, he thought of the gilded ceiling of that vast concert hall and heard stealing toward him the faint, sweet music of the swan. Hark, was it music or the hurry and shouting of men? Yes, surely. Clear and high, the faint, sweet melody rose and fluttered like a living thing so that the very earth trembled as with the tramp of horses and murmur of angry men. He leaned back and smiled toward the sea, whence rose the strange melody, Away from the dark shadows where lay the noise of horses galloping, galloping on. With an effort, he roused himself, bent forward, and looked steadily down the pathway, softly humming, quote, the song of the bride, end quote. Amid the trees in the dim morning twilight, he watched their shadows dancing and heard their horses thundering toward him, until at last they came sweeping like a storm, and he saw in front that, hot, that haggard, white-haired man whose eyes flashed red with fury. Oh, how he pitied him, pitied him, and wondered if he had the coiling, twisted rope. Then, as the storm burst round him, he rose slowly to his feet and turned his closed eyes toward the sea, and the world whistled in his ears. And that brings us to the end of chapter 13 of The Souls of Black Folk, and that brings us to the beginning of the final chapter of this book, The Souls of Black Folk. Okay, so that was a more tragic chapter than some of the others. I think that chapter and the chapter that was about the, I think it was called of the death of the firstborn, which is about the death of W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, firstborn son, have to be the uh, probably the most tragic chapters, individually, individually tragic chapters that we've read. The book as a whole uh, is a tragedy. I mean, the, the story of black people in the United States of America is the story of a tragedy. <clears throat> and as, as we were reading... As we were reading the book, reading the book, as we were reading that passage, the interaction between, excuse me, sorry about that, uh, the interaction between the white John, the judge's son, the judge, and the postman, all these these three white men who have all been figures and inspectors of white supremacy, of racism, of white nationalism, these three men have embodied the limitations that have put on the black John in some way they have embodied it. They have, they, they have been the voice pieces of the racist ideology that exists in this story. 
And when you see that, when you hear them all come together to talk and to have this communication and you see how each one of them talks about black people, uh, the judge talks about black people as a people to be ruled over. The judge's son talks about black people as a people to, that he wants to be segregated from. Uh, and then the postman speaks about black people as people who need to be kept in their place. And those are all different iterations of beliefs that white people had then and that white people still have. And it's very hard sometimes to for people to accept that in 2022, we're still people that think like this. But I always implore people to that these ideologies and uh, belief systems, they are generational. And so if you have a, a racist great grandfather, he passes that racism down to the grandfather. The grandfather passes it down to the father. The father passes it down to a, to the son. And those four generations of racism, of racist racism could span through 150 years, 150 years. And so you see how deeply in, uh, embedded these things are because you see what the judge's perception of black people are and you see how it manifests on his young son. Since the judge believes that black people should be subordinate and are to be controlled, his son believes the same thing about black people. And the judge uses the judge is an older man. And so he uses it in a, in a sense of power through politics. But his son, who is still younger, young and uh, quote unquote, sowing his oats. He's see he uses that power in a sexual way, in a, in a in a way of sexual violence, in a way of of sexual conquering. And he sees this black woman as an object to be conquered. He doesn't see her as a person or a human or individual. Uh, and so. And the, to, to me, one of the ironies about and most tragedies have ironies within them. The irony about this tragedy is that if the judge hadn't have went to the schoolhouse and shut the schoolhouse down because of his. Uh, deeply embedded racism, then John, the black John, would have been teaching school all day and he wouldn't even have been there to be able to uh, kill his son. The same thing, if the judge would have stayed there and dealt with his son and dealt with the issue at hand instead of becoming so enraged over the fact that the black John was teaching these black children the truth and about reality, he could have stayed there, had a conversation with his son, and his son wouldn't have went out to become uh, to try to rape a black woman. And so and then even and then within this as well, you see the dangers and the, the specific vulnerabilities, the unique vulnerabilities that black women deal with in this society and deal with in this country. You, uh, the black woman who's the mother of John, of the black John, has to deal with her son being uh, killed, will have to deal with her son being killed, a son who she's sent away and spent all this money to educate him and for him to be learned and, and to, to teach him. And now she's, he's been stolen away from her. And then his his sister, her daughter, uh, the black woman has to deal with the the ramifications, the residual effects of being raped, of this sexual violence that will stay with her for the rest of her life. And knowing that the man who saved her, who protected her, her brother, would have to lose his life uh, for that protection. And so and all of these things are forms of knowledge. These are these are real experiences and events and real interactions that happened and continue to happen, but that happened specifically at a certain, a certain time period for black people in this country. And it is foolish for black people to think that they can just uh, push those memories and that history to the side and try to embrace the present and embrace the now. 
the present and the now is built on those memories, is built on that history, and it is imperative that we hold on to it. So share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. Tomorrow, the next episode, we will uh, read the final chapter of The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We will finish that chapter. The episode after that, we will do a recap of the uh, book as a whole, and then we will begin reading Evicted by Matthew Desmond. I know I've been saying I'm going to get more uh, extra people in here to add to the readings. It's going to happen. Just give me some time. Bear with me. We're trying to get everything together. It's going to all make sense. I'll at you tomorrow.